Shalom, this is Reverend John Farad, and we're in Lesson 5 on God's appointed time of Sukkot. You might know it as the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles or the Jewish Feast of Booths. It's not a Jewish feast. According to Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 2, these belong to God. And they're not called feasts. They're called, in Hebrew, moedim. Or appointed times. So I'll be using the phrase appointed times in lesson five. It is the appointed time of God. It's the appointed time of booths or tents. You might hear the word tabernacle. And tabernacle or tabernacles, there's nothing more than tents. So in this lesson, we're going to see another reason. Another reason why for us as Christians to definitely see that this is something we should be doing. This is something we should be keeping. The Feast of Sukkot. The appointed time of Sukkot. The Lord's appointed time. And we're going to see that it is a reflection of of Yeshua himself. It testifies of him. Now there's something very curious about Sukkot. We're going to take a look at this in Leviticus 23 verses 33 to 36. Reading from the New American Standard Version, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying on the 15th of this seventh month as the Feast of Booths, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord as an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. The Feast of Sukkot, you guys, definitely has two parts to it. There is one part, which is the first seven days with specific rituals and so on. But then there's the eighth day. Bayom HaShmini. Now the Lord does not tell us exactly what this is all about. And perhaps he left it up to us, uh, up to, us to explore the idea of the number eight or the eighth day. Or the eighth day. This eighth day in Jesus' day was called the great day of the festival. Matter of fact, Sukkot was such an important feast in Jesus' day. such One that people look forward to. The time of their joy. It was, it was a party. A party that lasted a week. It was called the festival. And the eighth day was the great day of the festival. Now we remember in John 5.39 that Jesus is speaking to the scribes, probably to some Pharisees, probably to some chief priests in the temple courts. And in John 5.39 he says, Scripture testifies of me. And all they had was the Hebrew Scriptures. All they had was the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. And here is the Moed of Sukkot. God's appointed time, his appointed time. 
And already in lessons one through four, we have seen how Jesus is a shadow over this appointed time, how this testifies of Jesus. And how does, now we ask the question, how does this eighth day testify of Jesus? How is all this related to the Torah and the rituals of Sukkot? So first, let's consider the eighth day in the Hebrew Scriptures. So in Scripture, scholars have shown us that the number eight many times represents the completion of something, or it represents the start of something, something brand new. Sometimes it means both of these simultaneously. Let me give you an example like Noah. The flood is over, it's completed, and how many people are left? There are eight people left. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws. Eight people. Eight again. It's the completion of God's wrath. It's the completion of the flood. It's over. But for the human race, it's a new beginning. And these are the eight that God is going to use to start over the human race. Amazing. And again, we see that simultaneous symbolism here of the number eight. It's the end and the beginning. So we're going to take a look at some other key examples. You can go to Leviticus 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. And Leviticus 12 and many other places, but this is the key one that I wanted you to see and hear, is a Hebrew boy is going to be circumcised on his eighth day after he was born. This is where it says it in Leviticus 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. He will be circumcised. Beom Shmini on the eighth day. So for seven days, you would say the baby is just a baby. There's nothing special. He's just another baby boy. But on the eighth day, he becomes part of the co of the covenant. Part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. The boy begins a new life. as a new He has a new status. He becomes a covenant man to the world. You can read about the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. God promised him that he would have many descendants. God promised him that his name would be famous. His name would be glorified. God promised him land. And God promised him that through him, through his descendants, through his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. For this baby boy on the eighth day, he is circumcised. He becomes part of this. He is now called Ben Israel, a son of Israel. And so Isaiah 49.6 becomes important for him. You can look it up. In Isaiah 49.6, Israel becomes a light to the nations. You might say, a light of the world. To bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. This is exactly what it says. God's salvation is Yeshua. Jesus' name, Jesus, in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means salvation. And in Isaiah 49.6, 
all Israel is supposed to bring God's Yeshua, God's salvation to the ends of the earth. For we as Christians, we read about all of this in Paul's gospel in Galatians 3 verse 8. <laughs> the promises that God made to Abraham, especially the fourth one about all families of the earth will be blessed. Paul calls this the gospel. We would call it the gospel according to Moses because it is in the Torah. It is in the books written by Moses but inspired by God. So it's clear. The boy's circumcision is the end of one phase and it's the beginning of a new phase. The eighth day. Beom Shmini, an end and a beginning. Now, a second example is when God told Moses on the mountain the procedure for ordaining Aaron and his sons as priests of the Most High. You can read about this in Exodus 29, verses 1 through 35. We're going to take a look Specifically, at Exodus 29, we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar, and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now the actual consecration ceremony is detailed totally in Leviticus 8. And you can read in there that whole ceremony takes seven days. But then we get to chapter 9 in Leviticus verse 1, and it says, On the eighth day, on the eighth day something very special happens. Aaron and his sons are now ready to begin their new life as priests of Adonai. It's the first time they will do the sacrifices in the tabernacle. They have new life. It's new work. And it happens on the eighth day. So in Leviticus 9, if you want to look at it very carefully, one sees that Aaron is to offer sacrifices to Adonai to atone for himself and the people. The sacrifice there, and a key component of the sacrifices, is a calf. That's probably what it says in your English Bible. And you're thinking about a baby cow. It's not a baby cow. It's a young bull. The Hebrew is a gel. Strong's number is 5695. It's a young male bull. It's the same Hebrew word used for the golden calf a golden young male bull. It happens here and when the people worship the golden calf. We read about that in Exodus 32 verse 4. It only appears here and in the events surrounding the golden calf incident. So now just as they are to begin this new life, just as the people are to enter a new phase of their relationship to Adonai, with a priesthood to help them closer to God, God demands that 
a young male bull be sacrificed to atone for Aaron and the people, perhaps to atone for the sin of their worshiping the golden calf. At the end of Leviticus 9, the fire of God comes down and burns the sacrifices. The eighth day is a new beginning of the sacrificial system where the people bring their offerings to the Lord. Now, sacrifices or offerings in the Hebrew Bible is called korban. That's the Hebrew word. And it doesn't mean sacrifices. It doesn't mean offering. It means something that's brought near. It's something brought near. So that it represents the person, whether it's a bull or a lamb or a goat, so that they can come near to God. The eighth day is the beginning of for the Hebrews, young and old, rich and poor, so that they can come close to Adonai. The eighth day again, here we go, was the completion of the consecration ceremony of Aaron and his sons, which lasted seven days. But it was the beginning of the way for all God's people that they could come near to the Lord. Again, we come back to the fact that the eighth day is a beginning and it's an end. Now, there are other amazing examples in the Torah. The cleansing of a leper that took place for seven days. And on the eighth day, if the priest saw that the man was clean, on the eighth day he was declared clean and began his new life, an ending and a beginning. Or a person who touches a dead person. They're unclean for seven days. They go through a specific ceremony. And on the eighth day, they return to a refreshed life. They return to a life where they are cleansed of touching a dead person. Now there's other examples that I see with regards to the number eight or the eighth day. And once again, the Bible does not seem to precisely say what the meaning of this was, but when we take a look at the number eight and the eighth day, it makes sense. For instance, Genesis 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. God creates a Sabbath on the seventh day. After this, we read the particulars of the creation of man and woman. Woman is the last work of God in the creation on the sixth day. It seems clear. God enters the garden with Adam and Eve on the first Sabbath. And so we come to the last verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. But then the next verse is Genesis 3, verse 1. And we have to ask ourselves, what happened between these verses? Genesis 3, verse 1 is after the seventh day, Adam and Eve begin their new life together. So on the eighth day, when the creation is finished... They begin a new adventure to obey Adonai with the first command of Torah, and that is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are to fill the earth with his image since they are both created in his image. Adam and Eve are living representatives of God on earth. On Beyom HaShmini, on the eighth day, the creation was over, it was completed, 
and they began a new life to fill the earth with God's image. But then I think about Yeshua. I think about Jesus. It is possible that the events of Jesus' crucifixion happened in 30 A.D. and not in 33 A.D. If it happens in 30 A.D., then his triumphal entry would happen on a Sunday. And we could indeed say it was Palm Sunday. In 30 A.D., it was. In 33 A.D., it would have happened on a Monday. Because on the Hebrew calendar, in use in Jesus' day, what we call the day of the triumphal entry in 30 A.D. would have been Nisan 10, or it's the day for lamb selections as per the Torah. You could check this out in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 11. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 11, in the first Passover on Nisan 10, the 10th day of that month, according to the lunar calendar, they were to pick their lamb, which would be their Passover lamb. Each family, each head of the household, each dad. And that would have happened on the first day of the week in 30 A.D. And indeed, we could see it's Palm Sunday, and is it as if God is saying, the Father, I'm picking my lamb, the Lamb of God? Now, counting that as day one, Jesus rises from the dead on the eighth day of this season. He rises from the dead on the following Sunday. He rises on the eighth day from the day he was shown by the Father to be the chosen Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The eighth day. Now, there's another way of looking at it. Some might say, John, you're talking about 30 A.D.? I thought Jesus died in 33 A.D. There's a debate on that. A lot of people have settled on 33 A.D. because they basically have been taught this traditionally in the church right from the get-go. And technically speaking, there is a historical debate on this, and I believe it's 30 A.D. But anyway, regardless of whether it's 30 A.D. or 30 A.D. or any 33 A.D. or any year, the resurrection of Jesus clearly in the text of God's word is on the first day of the week on a, what we would call a Sunday. Now, that day that Jesus rises from the dead is the next day after a Hebrew Sabbath week is completed. The seventh day of a Hebrew week is the Sabbath. So Jesus, wrote on the Jesus rose on the next day, or the eighth day, according to the previous Sabbath week. The eighth day. A new beginning. A new start for all of us. There's so much here. The eighth day is, in God's word, it's, it's a big deal. Now Sukkot will end and be completed on Bayom Shmini, the eighth day. We read about that in Leviticus 23. 33 through 36. It's a very special day. It's a day of an end and it's a day of a beginning. It's the completion of Sukkot. It's the end of the appointed time. But one can look at it 
as a beginning, as a start of something. One book, for those of you that are serious in terms of Bible study, that I believe you should have, is a book by Chaim Schaus. It's called The Jewish Festivals. Chaim Schaus is recognized as an amazing, credible Jewish scholar. And for a quarter of a century, he taught at the Jewish Teachers Seminary in New York, and then later in Los Angeles at the College of Jewish Studies, and then at the University of Judaism as one significant Jewish leader said, who was the director of the National Curriculum Research Institute, in my teaching experience, I have found Schaus's book, The Jewish Festivals, an excellent text. It examines carefully all pertinent sources dealing with the subject. And then there's more recommendations here. But in the Jewish festivals, we read that Heim Schaus talks about the fact that Sukkot and basically Passover and Shavuot, Pentecost, are all agricultural feasts. For Sukkot, it's the end of the growing year. And it's the beginning of the rainy season. In Jesus' day, when they practiced their own rituals in those days, they had prayers for rain. Tefiliot Geshem. The prayers for rain. At the website My Jewish Learning, another great resource for those of you that are trying to study the Torah and trying to see how this testifies of Yeshua. They talk about, in Jesus' day, for seven days there was a daily water libation. A high priest would leave the temple courts, go down to the Pool of Siloam, which was quite a long walk downhill, and then back again with living water from the pool of Salome. That's not a cistern. That's a mikvah. And it was set up in such a way that the water that came into the pool of Salome came in constantly. It flowed in and it flowed out. And all related to that were the four species of plants that they would wave before the Lord. All of this hints at plants and water. The beginning of the rainy season. Second, each day, like I said, there was this water libation, but not on the eighth day. And it wasn't cistern water. It was be called living water. This is rainwater. God from water from heaven. Or spring water that naturally comes from a spring or a river. And that's what the water was at the Pool of Siloam, was a living water. Maim Kaim in Hebrew. And each day, the priest came back to the temple. And through a series of rituals, they poured this water, along with wine, on the altar. And it was all related to the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 3 that they will get the water from the wells of salvation. Now this is interesting. The water from the wells of salvation. Jesus' name is Yeshua. 
Isaiah 12, verse 3, another way of looking at it is to say that Jesus is the source of the living water? We'll take a look at that. But they were praying for rain. They were praying for God's living water to begin after the Feast of Sukkot so that the new growing season could begin successfully. But on the eighth day, there was no ritual. For the people, they would say, now the eighth day is here. Our hope is in our hope and our trust is in Yahweh. Our hope and trust is in the Lord. To bring rain in its season. The early rain, the season of rain, and the late rain. His living water. To bring his rain to the land for the new growing year. Now they would remember this because they said the Shema each day. It's a collection of verses. And these collection of verses were recited three times, uh, tw twice a day. The Shema in the morning and the Shema in the evening. And part of the Shema was Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 15. They said this every day. And it shall come about that if you listen obediently to my commandments, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your mind, that he will give the rain in its season, the early rain and late rain, so that you can gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. Ladies and gentlemen, the early rain starts in November and December, goes through January and February, and the late rain is at the beginning of the spring. This is Sukkot, related to the living water of God. Third aspect is each night, for seven nights during the Feast of Sukkot, there was a torch celebration. Four huge, gigantic torches with four bowls, gigantic bowls attached at the top probably 75 feet high with olive oil. They were lit each night when the sun went down. And the light is this, it was said to be shined all over Jerusalem. A light shining in the darkness. And this would, beginning, this would begin a dance party. And the men would dance and the dancing would last all night. Many of the men would actually juggle torches during this dance. No women, women allowed. If you want to read more about this, I highly recommend Carta's Illustrated Encyclopedia. Carta's Illustrated Encyclopedia of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Carta's Illustrated Encyclopedia of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, written by Israel Ariel a-R-I-E-L and Chaim Richman R-I-C-H-M-A-N and in there you will read about the historical details about the Feast of Sukkot especially during Jesus' day so each night for seven nights in Jesus' day they had this just awesome party the awesome party of light Alfred Edersheim is a celebrated scholar, but biblical scholar, and he wrote a book called The Temple, Its Ministry and Its Services, and he has comments on this, and I think his comments are, I mean, so associated with God's Word and the Feast of Sukkot. 
He says, it seems very possible that the illumination of the temple with these four huge torches was regarded as forming part of and having the same symbolic meaning as the pouring out of the water. The light shining out of the temple into the darkness around and the lighting up of every court in Jerusalem must have been intended as a symbol, not only of the Shekinah, in other words, the indwelling presence of God in the temple, but that, but of that great light which the people that walked in darkness were to see, in which was to shine upon them that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Just listen to this as these verses related to that light. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a, a light has dawned. Or Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. And on the eighth day, it was the completion of Sukkot. There was no ritual of the lighting of the torches. That was done. Not on the eighth day, though. That was over. So we see some amazing applications of the eighth day to the great day of the festival, the last day. But for us... <sighs> We read about something really extraordinary as we go to John chapter 7. And we're going to take a look at verse 37 through 39. Verse 37, New American Standard. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, those that phrase there in John appears in other Jewish literature. The last great day of the feast. The festival, Sukkot. So this is the eighth day. Jesus stood out and cried, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's the last day. The water libation of the living water poured upon the altar is over. Jews then, they, they saw this as a picture of God's living water that they were hoping for in the new season of rain for their crops and their flocks, the water for life. And now on the eighth day, Jesus says, I'm the source of true living water. And it's coming from him. He says, if you thirst, come to me and I will give you to drink. And for those who believe, those who are his disciples, they will have streams of living water flowing from them. Somebody once asked me, is the Holy Spirit given once? Uh, yes and no. Holy Spirit comes upon the new believer, upon the disciple of Adonai Yeshua, 
and it becomes a stream. It's a never-ending stream of the Holy Spirit flowing into the believer and out of the believer. It's not once. It never ends. By the very words of God, Jesus said it will be a stream. Jesus uses Sukkot. He uses the water ritual to help teach us spiritually of the true living water. But then we read in John chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to go through all the verses, but you should go to John chapter 8. This is after the eighth day. In John chapter 8, it talks about Jesus was at the Mount of Olives at early the next morning. So we get the impression from John in his gospel that it's the next day after the eighth day. Very closely associated with Sukkot. One thing that Jesus does in John chapter 8 is he has the encounter with a bunch of scribes and Pharisees as they brought him the woman caught in adultery. That's the first thing. And what's interesting is, it's so close to Sukkot, and what does he do? You'll remember the story. The climax, though, is he says to the woman, go and sin no more. She has a new beginning. It's her eighth day. It's not the eighth day of the festival, but it's a new eighth day for her. God himself has forgiven her and said, go and sin no more. That's related to Sukkot. That's why I think that event has been put right there. And that's why John perhaps put it there. Now after this, right after this, at verse 12, Jesus says something quite amazing. In verse 12 he says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. My goodness, he's quoting Isaiah, verse 9, verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. The verse that was used for seven days during the Feast of Sukkot. So, during Sukkot, we had those tall flaming torches, like God's light shining in the darkness for all nations. And Jesus talks about the fact that he is the light of the world. The light shining in the darkness. It's so close to Sukkot. For his disciples, perhaps in the future as they celebrated the Feast of Sukkot, before the temple was destroyed, that light show for seven nights took on a whole new and different meaning. Be'yom ha-shmini. It's the last day of Sukkot the great day of the festival. And on that day, Jesus says, I am the source of living water. Just as during the feast of Sukkot, God is the source of living water. Mayim Kaim. That eight, the eighth day represents an end and a beginning. And it testifies of Yeshua. As we read in Revelation 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
And this we remember. On the eighth day, the great day of the festival, the eighth day of the Feast of Sukkot. And we'll remember in Luke 24:50 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father, just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing, that blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses, to Aaron, to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkeinu, Yair Adonai Panava Aleinu, Bekunekeinu, Isa Adonai Panava Aleinu, Viasem Lanu Shalom, Vishem Yeshua Adonainu, Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.